This is the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN New York. At 1-800-919-3776. Also via Twitter at Hardesty ESPN at ESPNNY. 98 underscore 7 FM along with JP. We're riding until midnight. With you on the big Sunday, soulful Sunday edition of the show. Thanks for stopping by. I'm going to tell you something. I don't, I kind of feel it, Ranger fans. I kind of feel it. I kind of know what it's like where your team has got the lead and your team is playing well. And then Buffalo gets a goal and they cut it to four to two. And you're like, uh oh, I can see what's happening. That, that tape plays of various games that have been lost. Or tied late, especially in the third period where the Rangers during the year have struggled. But not tonight. Nice win. Don LaGreca and Dave Maloney, I love those guys. And uh, LaGreca, uh, outstanding on the call as always, as is Kenny Albert. You know, I'm just telling you, we are blessed to have real, real talented play-by-play folks in this town. We're really, really blessed. And you... And you guys that that travel around the league, you guys that have satellite, you know what I'm talking about. You guys that have the various packages, NHL package, MLB package, NBA package. You know what I'm saying. You you know what I'm talking about. As I mentioned, we're here until midnight. We'll be joined a little later. We'll talk about the NFL draft even later tonight in the 11 o'clock hour. We'll talk a little baseball. Rich Catino will join us about 1130. He'll update us on the Mets. But I'm going to start right here because for – Gosh, it seems like forever. But nights Alan Hahn and I would talk about, oh, if the Knicks were just competitive. Oh, if they could just win some games and string some wins together. Oh, if they could just go in the right direction. And he's been so busy. He's been doing mornings with, you know, with Bart and himself. He's also been filling in for Zubin with the Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin show from 8 to 10 here on 98.7 ESPN, along with doing his show with Bart, as I mentioned, Bart Scott, from noon to 2. And then he's all over MSG. I'm watching him on MSG. Sometimes he's in the studio. Other times they keep him locked in his basement at home. And I said, you know what? For a couple of minutes, I just want to talk to Alan because the team is winning. They've won nine straight. And I believe we deserve, we've earned the right to just sit and luxuriate in the fact that this is a winning team who's in fourth place by themselves in the Eastern Conference. Alan Hahn, good evening. How are you, my friend? Larry, it's been a while. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. And I can't, it's worth the wait. I, I wanted to talk to you around this time. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, it, you know, I, I keep saying this, too, to a lot of Nick fans. Is, this is the team we didn't know we needed. You know, like mm. it's, it's because if you think about – how many opportunities or, or efforts it was to go after a star player? I mean, how many times did did we go through the the rolodex of, you know, will this guy sign? Well, can they can they trade for that guy? Right? It was always going to be who is the savior, and it's you know, and what happened was is you got a team full of consolation prizes, hmm. right? Think about that for a minute. You know, Julius Randle was signed because you couldn't get Kevin Durant. You know, R.J. Barrett was your draft pick because you did you couldn't get Zion Williamson or John ja Morant. You know, a lot a lot of these names that you see on this roster, Emmanuel quickly was the player nobody wanted with that second first round pick. In fact, it was it was a reach. Everybody said that you didn't have you could have waited to the second round to get that guy. 
Right, think about that. So there's so many different pieces, and, and some didn't like Tom Thibodeau. Some wanted someone else. Well, you know, whether it was, you know, well, look, with Mark Jackson or whoever else it was, there was other people that felt like, oh, this guy, he's a retread. He's, he burnt out in Minnesota. It's not going to work. He's going to drive him into the ground, right? Derek Rose, the first time around, that didn't work out here. When you heard they were trading for him, everybody rolled their eyes. Here we go again. Yeah, I did that too. Right? Like, we all did it. No, no, Larry, we all did it. I mean, this is, look, I, I don't know how many times I went into the, the you know, the confessional this year. Yeah, <laughs> whether it was Ju- whether it was Julius Randall, bless me, Father Fry, I've sinned. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've done it. So I've come to the conclusion that this is the team we didn't know we needed. The team that actually the the star that you could say, well, they they signed him as a free agent. He's not really homegrown. Yeah, but he became a star in this uniform. He realized what well, last year. I don't like the way I was playing last year. I don't like the way I looked last year. I need to change my ways, and he did in a Nick uniform. You know, the, and then obviously the, the core of young players. And the coach, by the way, who also has a bit of a pedigree here because he was an assistant coach during the glory years. So there's a connection to that. There's just so many cool things about it that it suddenly becomes, hey, you know what? This is the team we always wanted. We just didn't know this was the team. And that's what you've got right now. And it's been, I mean, it really has. Not just the nine-game winning streak. That's That's been, Larry, that's been the enjoyable part, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of been the, uh, like, they, it's, it's sort of been the, the, the thing that kind of endorsed the whole feeling of the year. But even before the winning streak, it just felt like a different year. And it felt like, you know, they're not great, but I enjoy watching them. And now you're like, hey, they're pretty good. And I enjoy watching them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And and remember, they're not healthy. They've got, they've got guys who are missing, injured. Missing two key players. Yeah, it's yeah. true. You know, so what they've been able to do is amazing. Alan, you mentioned it. You mentioned about Julius Randle just for a second. Let's just talk about what he's been able to do. And now, Alan, uh, we you have to sign him long term now. With the way he's performed, you know what were we talking about? Well, maybe an expiring contract. If nothing works out, we can move it. Yeah, you, that's not even the conversation at this point. So you're doing it, Larry. <laughs> we can't even get out of this season, can we? We're already spending next year's money, aren't we? Like, isn't it great? Like, this is what we do. I this mean, what we do. they won the ninth game, right? They, they won their ninth game on, um, on uh, what was it, Saturday afternoon, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The days are just blending. And, and you know, I, 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 it's so, so funny how that's the very first thing that all fans start doing. <laughs> you know, because I just put out the thing, like, imagine this team once they actually get a point guard. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the, the there's uh-huh. one piece missing. And now it's like, because it used to be, well, they need a point guard, then they start from there. Now it's almost like, could that be like the final piece? Like that suddenly yeah. now it really wakens what you've already got set up. And so can you, and so what is what it's become? Well, who can we get? Who can we get? What are we going to get? How are we going to get that guy? And if we get that guy, we can't resign this guy. And I'm like, hey, here we go. The season's not even over. Like we can't even enjoy it, but that's what we do. But you're right. Look, my strategy would be this, Larry. You pick up the option and then negotiate the extension off the option. Why? Mm-hmm. It saves you some money. That's why. Right? It saves you mm-hmm. some money because the option is still is a very reasonable price. But if you pick up the option and then, you know, extend off of it, well, that obviously gives Julius more time in the uniform and obviously more security. So for him, it makes sense, too. But you also sell it to him as, and you help us with the cap space because there are a bunch of guys we'd like to keep, and there might be a few people we want to go after. So that's how I would do it, and I think that's probably the best approach. No, I agree with you. 
Yeah, you know, you guys know this voice is Alan Hahn. He's all over the station now. Here <laughs> <laughs> on 98.7 ESPN. Alan, I'm People say the, too much. <laughs> no, they do not. I'm watching the Milwaukee Atlanta game because I'm a fan right now. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And yeah, who are you rooting for, though? Because you, you're, you're, look, if, if Milwaukee loses, you're four games back in the loss column. But if the Hawks win, you're tied with them for fourth. So who are you rooting for? I'm rooting for Milwaukee. I don't want to be tied with them. Smart. I want to move ahead. I want to move ahead. I, I don't. <laughs> you want to hold I'll on worry to four. Yeah. yeah, I'll worry about that later. Let yeah. me let me lock in four. That, that's what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> you know, that's what I want to do, Alan. Like um, Alan, this Eastern Conference is really interesting to me when we talk about it, and maybe you can figure this out for me because people have asked me, and I have no answers. Why is Boston Miami still struggling? Uh, I don't understand. Uh, Boston doesn't have a bench. That's kind of the conclusion I've come to, is they just don't really have enough depth. They've actually gotten very young on their bench, and they just don't have like some of the studs they used to have. And so I blame it on their bench. It's a lot of pressure on Tatum and Brown to carry them. And, you know, I mean, honestly, Kemba has put up numbers, but, you know, he know you could just tell he's not. He's just never getting into his rhythm. He can't play back-to-backs. He's not really physically the same player he was. So... You know, that's really their team. And they really miss Gordon Hayward, clearly. Yeah, they do. And, and who knew, right? But they yeah. certainly miss him, and they and they really obviously don't have uh, an answer in the in the post anymore either. Um, Horford, really, it was since he's gone, their defense is not the same. So I think that it's they, they really are a very deep team, right? Uh, the Heat are just funny this year. You know, I mean, Hero's not the same guy. Uh, their game where they can make shots and, and they're really good. They're deep. They're always going to play hard against you. They're always, their defense is always going to be, you know, the, the staple. But whatever magic they had last year in the playoffs, we're all just waiting for it to click again. And sometimes you see it, but a lot of times you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just funny. They just seem to be missing something. There's something that, and once again, you know how they are. They can just another week or so late in the season. Oh, you know, they forget they get it, the right. guys. Well, I've seen that. I mean, I've in. seen it. The Knicks have certainly seen it firsthand. I yeah. mean, they, those games are just physical battles, and they really they play Julius really hard. And and once you take him out of the game, it sort of changes everything. So you know, we look at the, I look at them always as a threat. Like I think if I'm the Nets, that's the I don't want to see the Heat. Mm. I don't. But the Heat don't have enough firepower to keep up with the Nets. No. But the Heat definitely have the physicality and defense to do it. But we keep saying it, and yet we're not seeing it. It's sort of like the Bucks. Yes. The Bucks are that team that in the regular season, you're just like, you marvel at them. Like, oh, my God, they're just a machine. Mm-hmm. But yet, we never see that in the playoffs against good teams. So it's hard to really have faith in them anymore. And you're, not, you're really not seeing it, Alan, consistently during the regular season this year. They're not the same team. And in theory, with Drew Holiday, they should be better. They should be better. Well, they, I think they've, you know, they've had some injuries. Drew's been out. Um, you know, they are now, I think, really starting to find their, their way. But, of course, as we know, crunch time against good teams, who's the guy taking that last shot? Usually, it's mm. not Giannis. Usually, no. it's Chris, usually it's Chris Middleton. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll take my chances with your second best player taking the, taking the last shot. Absolutely. All right, we've neglected them. Let's talk about them. the Brooklyn Nets. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan, they're interesting to me because obviously when all three pieces are there, they're going to be very tough to stop even in the postseason. Oh, yeah. Even when you slow the game down and you try these, even when you know you're playing in the series and they know your plays and you know their plays, it doesn't matter because these guys can just individually go off. The question is obviously aside from health, 
Is there anybody in the East that, from a coaching standpoint, that maybe you can find a way to out-schematic them, to make it a little tougher for them to get scores where you could at least win more than one or two games? The only team I see, like, like again, I mentioned the Heat because, mm-hmm. you know, you just feel like, you know, with Spolstra, like they just – they could find a way, right? They could find a way physically. If Jimmy's – you know, Jimmy Butler is being Jimmy Butler, Bam certainly is a really good defender, doesn't get enough credit for how good of a defender he is. Um, you know, they, they, they can be – they could be that team that spoils it. I just don't know if they could do it in seven-game series. Yeah. The Sixers and Doc Rivers – are the team I think that has the only shot, in my opinion, in the East. Mm-hmm. I know everybody wants to say the Bucks. I don't try. No, I don't trust the Bucks. You know, well, Giannis can guard Kevin Durant. No, he can't. No, he can't. you know, like, and you know, Drew can guard Kyrie. No, he can't. No, you know, <laughs> like it's honest. Like when you really put it together, and if James Harden comes back, who the hell's guarding him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, like who's guarding him? So it's it's they they just are such a matchup nightmare when all three guys are healthy. And by the way, and I don't think they get enough credit. The Nets, when I say, you know, like the Celtics have no depth, the Nets, the, the Nets have such a good, not just bench, but supporting cast of guys now. Where Blake Griffin, who we all thought was you know long gone, career over, he's skinnier. I don't know if you've noticed. He's, mm-hmm. he's definitely leaned up, and he doesn't have to do as much. So when he does something, you're like, oh, crap, that's right. That's Blake Griffin, you know? Um, I, I, I think Jeff Green still gives you something. Yeah, and then there's, of course, the guys like, you know, Joe Harris and, and Landry Shamit, And, you know, they're just one after another. They just keep throwing guys at you where you just, you know, you just shake your head like, wait, that guy's pretty good, too. And that guy's pretty good, too. And I didn't even mention DeAndre Jordan. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so they they have so many. They could go 12 deep. And that's you never go 12 deep in the playoffs. But if you ever needed to, you know, that's what makes them to me so tough. Um, the Sixers are the only team I feel like because of their defense, because of Doc, and because Ben Simmons is a great defender. Joel Embiid is a really good defender. You know, Tobias can get you twelve. You know, all three guys can get you twenty on a given night. So you've got enough enough offensive firepower. You got guys that can shoot the three, so that can spread the floor a little bit for you. Their bench is okay, not great, but it's 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 good. Mm-hmm. That's it. I just don't see it though. If you're asking yeah. me, Nets of the field. I'm taking the Nets. Yeah, you have to because just of the talent alone. Uh, what they're, they have. Too, they're too good. Yeah, they're too good. The only thing that's going to stop them is them. You know, that's the best way to put it. Who can stop the Nets? The Nets can. The Nets are the only team that can stop the Nets. That's it. Real quick, Allen out west. Uh, I don't care what number they are. I don't want to face Golden State. <laughs> I don't want really? to face them. I really don't. Not the way uh, Steph Curry's playing right now. Nah, he's playing I, I that way play now. I guess, I like, I, yeah, yeah, he's hot now. You know, I don't. I don't know if you see again buying or selling. I don't know if I'm buying. I don't know if I'm buying the Warriors. I gotta be honest with you. I know. Yeah, he's been. He was on a, a great run. Uh, he had a good trip to the East. Um, they 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 were. You know, they were playing really well. It's still a very young team. When we get into the postseason, young players tend to show show themselves, right? And, yes. and there's only so much this stuff could do. So, aside from that, I don't know if it's the Warriors that I'm worried about in the West. You know, I'm looking at Portland, and suddenly they're dropping like a stone. Like, what, what's going on there? Well, Lillard's you know, been hurt. That's, that's yeah. A part Dallas, of Dallas isn't right. Like, Dallas is good, but not great. Like, there's something weird about Dallas where they're they're good, but you really feel like they're not enough. And now, my question for you is: Do you trust the Suns? Because they're you know they're number two. They've had a great season, but again, postseason now. Do you yeah. trust them? No, I don't. 
And, I really and then, don't. And then there's Utah. Do you trust Utah? No, I don't. So that means who's <laughs> left? Don't. L.A. Know, L.A.'s. The L.A.'s. That's and, it. And, <laughs> you know, and Jamal Murray. I don't know what he's going to know. Denver. Uh, Denver, yeah. And they have another injury now. It's not just Jamal now. There was um, uh, who else was it? There was another player. Another good player on their team just got hurt. Mm. Was so it Barton? Gonna... It was somebody else that they lost as part of their rotation. So Jokic yeah, really going to yeah. So Jokic really going to have to do um, do a lot more now on his own. But they I, after the um, after the Gordon trade, I thought, wow, that's a nice addition, and they, yeah. they're really starting to hum. And then that injury happened to Murray. It's like ah, certain teams, you know, where you're just like, nope, wasn't meant to be. Yeah. And and that, and that certainly is the story of the Denver Nuggets this season. But I, I feel like again, it's it's exactly what the league wants. It's yes, true. it's New York and L.A. Yeah, and it'll probably Brooklyn and the Lakers, and yet you'll have a lot of action because the Clippers will make some noise and the Knicks will be in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So really, if you're the NBA, you kind of love all that. You do. Uh, here's what I'm rooting for, Alan. I'm rooting for Dallas to fall out into the play-in situation. <laughs> He's so selfish. Get eliminated, <laughs> and then I'll, we get their draft choice, which that is becomes going to be a lottery pick. It's yes, a lottery it pick. Yes, it that's does. That's what I want. That's what I want, Alan. That's would, what I, now, would that be your dream? Your dream season would be the Knicks clinch at least a top six. Yep. Dallas loses in the 7-10, and so you have a first round at least for the Knicks and a lottery pick as well. Yes. That's your dream scenario. And it doesn't get any better than so that. So if you if you were swept in the first round, like let's say you ended up having to play like Milwaukee or Philly, right? Mm-hmm. And you get swept in the first round. Yet Dallas loses in the 7-10, so that's a lottery pick. You'd still consider that. That's a win for you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a win for me because, like Mark Stein said in his article a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. I wasn't ready for the Knicks to be like this. <laughs> Nobody was. That's the best part. Like I said, they're the team we didn't know we needed. Yep. They're the team we didn't know we wanted, but they're exactly the team we needed. Alan, my friend, keep, keep up the great work. Uh, tell Wally I miss him. And here's the other thing. I, he smiles. He's got one of the best smiles in TV. So I don't know whether he's – I don't. when the Knicks are losing, he comes back from the break and he's got that, you know, that $10 million smile. Well, again, it's actually more than $10 million. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> he's earned it. And yeah. so have you. Thanks, my friend. Be good on the radio in the morning. Always good to talk to you, Larry. Same here. Thanks. Take care. That's Alan Hahn with us for a couple of minutes here on 98.7 ESPN. 1-800-919-3776. Also via Twitter at Hardest to ESPN at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. We normally don't start our show like that, but I had to get him on because he's got to get up early in the morning and, and help you get to work or to school or wherever your destination is first thing in the morning. So he will be up uh, to do that following uh, DCR with the uh, you know, Dave Rothenberg and Rick DiPietro and Chris Canty. So those guys will get you started from 5 to 8, and then Alan will join uh, with uh, Keyshawn and Jay Will. And they will, they got a lot of draft talk, and we'll talk the draft as well. But I got to tell you, yesterday's game was, for me, just that ninth in a row was just, it was just, it was such a great feeling, right? And... As a suffering Nick fan, and you Nick fans understand what I'm talking about, where you start a streak and then something happens and you just start losing and things happen. That's what's happened in the past. But this year, what's been so great is that whenever this team has tasted some adversity, especially of late, whenever they've tasted some adversity, they have what I love to call 
They don't have a glass chin. They fight, they scratch and claw, and they bounce back. And they, even if they're down in the game, they are never out of the game. And I know there's a bunch of cliches, right? But that's what you see from this team. And yeah, it stems from the coach, but it also stems from the players. It also stems from the chemistry that these guys have. Okay, it stems from the fact that they they play for each other. They like each other. And it's very similar to what you saw in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, okay, with D'Angelo Russell and that crew. And you could see that they played for each other. They liked each other. They went to battle with and for each other, and they knew. And that's what they were doing. And that's what you're seeing with this Nick team. And when you look and you understand how they're doing it, with the players they have. And of course, Julius Randle has been tremendous. And he gets a lot of credit, and rightfully so, what he's been able to do this season, how he's changed himself. Rightfully so. If you were to nitpick, you know, the turnovers and stuff, would you like for him to cut down the turnovers? Yes, you would. But once again, as we all know, and Alan pointed out, they had a point guard, he wouldn't be handling the ball as much. Okay, if he if he had a, a solid point guard who could get him the ball where he needed it, that could orchestrate an offense and give you some defense and, and play well, he wouldn't have to do that. So part of that is because he is trying that point forward role to set your offense up. But uh, it's the other guys. It's the Emmanuel Quickleys. It's actually an Obi Toppin sighting, and, and we've talked a lot about him, right? And we have talked a lot about uh, what we've seen from him, how he's not really looked like he's been able to get acclimated to the pro game, that he just seems to be a step slow. Sometimes he looks like, you know, you look at him and it looks like he doesn't know what he's doing out there. He looks lost. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's been a struggle for him. And part of it is because, Let's face it, his minutes are limited because he plays the same position that Julius Randle plays. And he has not given you enough offense. Defense has not been bad. Rebounding's not been bad. But he has not given you enough offense, okay, to warrant more time on the floor where he could get into a flow. And when you have a situation like that, especially with young players, what you find out is then they start playing, looking to the sidelines for them for when somebody's coming in to replace them. <laughs> okay. That's, that's what happens there in those situations. So uh, what we saw Saturday was him actually having a game where he was a contributor on both ends of the floor. And that was something that you need to see from him, and it's going to be great from him. I mean, he had nine points in nine minutes. He had the three was working for him. He was three for four from three, a couple of rebounds. So you you were able to see he was able to give you something offensively. And I think as you go down this season, you want to be able to do that. You want to see that he's able to contribute that way. You need to see that from him. You need to see some growth. And now what's important is to see how he plays tomorrow night against the Phoenix team that lost today to the Nets, so it's a back-to-back for them. Knicks had the day off, so they'll be ready. And it's a, you know, it's a big challenge 
okay? Because you know Chris Paul is still a phenomenal player. They, this is a this is a Phoenix team that can shoot the basketball. Okay, they can score. All right, there's no question about that. You know they can score, and so this is what you're expecting. So this is going to be a challenge for this Nick uh, defense. But I'm telling you, I, I'm just very very happy with the way that they've played during this nine game winning streak. Obviously. And just think about this. Knicks are seven games over 500. Seven. 21 and 10 at home. I mean, that's great. That's great. And 13 and 14 on the, on the road. So, you know, you want to try to be 500 on the road and as dominant as you can be at home. And, of course, understanding that you're going in to this killer road trip that begins next week going out west uh, they needed these wins to kind of a give a buffer but also to give some you know some confidence in the fact that they can play they can win some games and hopefully they get some of their guys back 1-800-919-3776 let's go to the phone Spike is in St. Pete hey Spike you're batting leadoff tonight on 987 ESPN well, I couldn't be more honored to follow Alan Hahn and talk to my friend Larry. And I have a, an interesting comment. I hope you agree with me. It seems that momentum's growing every game. Do you buy into that? Yes, I do. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we talked uh, the, uh, the night. I get you and Gordon Wall right after the game. It's it's just a it's great release for me to to go back and forth with you guys, you know, our emotions. And then I watched the game yesterday. And what I noticed yesterday, you know me, I have all the numbers and fit. I don't care about all that stuff. But Toronto was a wounded animal with four wins in a row. Lowry didn't look right. Would you agree? No, he didn't. He was he's he's struggling. Okay. Right. Right. And they initially started off with Siakam and Nobi getting into the paint. Thibodeau made brilliant adjustments. Uh, Julius did his thing. Derek Rose. Now, listen, I'm taking nothing away. I want to preface it from Julius Randle. Mm-mm. He's made the quantum leap. He's probably second team all NBA. I've never seen an athlete improve in one year like that. And you'd be hard pressed to come up with anyone in any sport. But Derek Rose is so key to this operation. The joy he's playing with, he still has his hops. And did you notice during the game, I know with Yakina, you did, the guys, the youngsters were patting him on the back and the smiles. This team is, I don't care if they play Toronto or Atlanta, it looks like it's probably going to be that unless they, you know, spit the bit and go, you know, three and what's left, 11 or 10, three and seven. I'm figuring they're going to go four and six, five and five or six and four. Uh, I think that'll get us to 38, 39, you know, whatever. I think we'll be four or five. Would you be happy with that? Yes. As long as I'm not in the seven and below. Correct. Okay. So we're shooting for the same thing. These guys have zero quit in them, Larry. Mm -hmm. We saw a little out of Coppin last night, which maybe it was an aberration, maybe not. I'm not counting on him for anything in the playoffs. If we get it, it's gravy. But, Derek Rose, if he's managed properly with the with the minutes, 
can really bring home the bacon here, meaning that we can get into the first round, and I think we could take Atlanta or Boston. And, and Boston, I can't figure them out. Now, you know they've lost 102 player games to COVID. Yeah. That's been their demise, and they look terrible today. Mm-hmm. And we get Phoenix. Uh, we get Phoenix tomorrow off of a back-to-back where mm-hmm. they got beat handily by the Nets. Yeah. And this all might be moot. I know I'm rambling on. This all might be moot, but all I want this year is not the ping-pong balls. <laughs> <laughs> all I want is to get into the playoffs and have a shot at winning the first round. I think that will be climbing a big mountain. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I agree with you because I, I want these young players to taste the playoffs. I think that that experience is invaluable, you know, in, in talking to young players over the over the years, as I've been fortunate enough to do, Spike, that's what they tell you, that being in the postseason and tasting that and what the difference is and, you know, just a totally different atmosphere, different pressure, that experience, I think it, it helps you as you go forward. And it's a necessary it building block. Yeah, I, I think I think the diehard fuckers are going to watch. My last comment, thanks for the time. It's great hearing Alan. I know he's got a nutty schedule right now with the football draft and everything. But it's enough with the awards already. You know, I, it, awards are awards. Julius Randle's a lock for most improved player. He'll probably be second team all NBA, and he'll probably finish whatever in the MVP. It, unless the Knicks continue to win out the rest of the year, then it's a, a no, no ball game. But I don't really care about this. I love the way this team is playing. And I'm leaving you with this. The sooner we get back, Mr. Burks, mm-hmm. it's going to make it a little easier. It'll spread the floor. Do you agree? Yes, it'll, split, it'll spread the floor, and it's going to help your bench scoring even more. And what I like, Spike, and thanks for the phone call, my friend. So it was good talking to you. What I especially like is that now you're starting to see where the minutes are being dispersed, where Derrick Rose is now getting most of the minutes or a good part of his minutes in that fourth quarter. So it gives Randall somebody else that can create their own shot, somebody that can put the ball on the deck, take it to the basket, short jumpers, whatever you need. It's somebody that the defense has to respect as an offensive threat. And so that's that's what I like a lot. And that has been the case, especially of late, because of the situation with Alec Burks and whatever health issues and what's going on with him, health or injury. So that's been the that's been, you know, something that Thibodeau has made the adjustment with, and I like that. And once again, give uh, Reggie Bullock credit because with the expanded minutes that he's getting, he has been pretty consistent offensively as well, especially from three. Now he was three of seven yesterday, had 16 points in 37 minutes, but still he he's a guy who once again is an offensive threat. And so, which is the other thing that's just baffling to me is where is this three point shooting coming from with this Nick team? I mean, since when? I mean, when you looked at you look at the roster on this team and the shooting percentages from three, you're shaking your head. You're like, "What is that? This is how it's go. This can't be." But over this during this nine game winning streak, this team has played very, very well from three. They've been able to shoot the three at a very high percentage, and 
you know, they continue to play the defense that they're known for. Okay. And so that's, that's what has been the success of this team. There's no question about it. Oh man, you, you love it. You know what I mean? They give you the energy. They're always talking to you during the game. Um, every time out, they're always in your ear telling you certain things. And I mean, it, it's it's a collective um, effort. Like you need everyone from the starters all the way down to the last down events. Everybody needs to be on the same page and have one collective goal. And um, that's what you're saying right now. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's trying to get better. Everybody's looking better than another team. And uh, I mean, that's what you see in the bench with guys jumping up. Um, I'm in the second row, so um, I, I, I cheer whenever I can, but I can't run up and jump on the court like some of them guys. I'll be over there stretching and everything. I got to get my body warmed up the entire time. Derek Rose talking about that Nick bench and the importance of it. It's the Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN. Here till midnight with you on a Sunday. And you know, yesterday was not a real good example of that bench. Okay, Toppin had nine, uh, Gibson had nine, and uh, quickly had six. Derrick Rose was the star of that bench brigade yesterday with 19 in 33 minutes. But that bench has really been, and that's, as I was talking with Alan, Alan Hahn, that's where Burks comes in because you're missing him, so you're missing that, those points, which is easily another 10 to 15 points from the bench that you would normally have that you don't have now because of his uh, injury and his not being with the team. But the bench has been a major factor for this team. They do a great job in changing pace. They tend to continue uh, the defensive activity and philosophy. And on some, in some cases they improve it. You know, if that, uh, if, if the starters have been struggling a little bit, Defensively, sometimes they come in and just change the narrative, right? Come in and change what's going on. So uh, the bench has been very, very important. And Derrick Rhodes has been a big part of that bench. He really has. Really, really has. Also, when you think about this Nick team, the other thing that jumps out at me is, and we've talked about Tom Thibodeau, and we've talked about what uh, Julius Randle's been able to do. But Thibodeau today talked about the work ethic that Julius Randle has. And the interesting thing is, and we've seen it, right? Part of it was how he came into camp. Part of his work ethic was established during the offseason and how he came back and his mindset and his motivation that he was just not happy with the way he performed last year. And he worked to change that. And Tom Thibodeau commented on the hard work that Randall's done and how it has rubbed off on the rest of the team. You know, it always starts with your best players. And if they work like that, it sets the tone for the team. And so uh, he's relentless. He's, uh, and it's not an accident that he's having the type of season that he's having. Uh, his commitment, uh, I can see it from the first day I met him, just looking at the type of conditioning uh, he had and how committed he was to turning this thing around. And so, you know, I could recall back in the, in the nineties when I, when I first arrived here as an assistant, 
the thing that blew me away was Patrick Ewing was every morning in the offseason. He was the first guy in the building and worked like crazy and got himself ready. And, and the rest of the team did the same. And, you know, I think that that's, that's leadership. It's not, you know, what you say, it's what you do. And when you see an example like that, it gives you confidence and it gives the team confidence. Listen, there's no question about it. And and coaches will tell you that, players tell you that. It does start with your best player. Because, listen, everybody's not equal on a team. <laughs> Don't believe the hype. <laughs> the better the player, they tend to get, you know, they're treated a little differently from everybody else. <laughs> so when you have a player, your best player, like Julius Randle, playing the way he is and working hard and doing those things, that's a major statement to the coaching staff. And it sends a definite message to the team that I'm committed. I'm buying into what this coach is selling. And ultimately, that's what is successful for every coach. There's talent, and there's talent that buys into that coach's philosophy. And that's what this Knicks team is doing. They're buying into what uh, Tibbs is selling. And what makes it good is the fact that they're winning. So that's what helps sell what he's preaching, right? Because you see the results. Steve's in Jersey. Hey, Steve, you're next on 98.7. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right, Steve. What's up? All right. Um, listen, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I love my Knicks, but a Knicks fan for 36 years. The only problem I have with Thibodeau's coaching is uh, last possession shots, game-winning shots to end the game. If you think about uh, when we played the Atlanta Hawks on some time last week, Nate McMillan from Atlanta, he ran a perfect play for uh, Bogdanovich in the corner three. Bogdanovich was wide open, and he hit the three. That was a designed play to get that man open, and he hit the shot. Now, flip it over to the Knicks. Uh, Thibodeau, we didn't run a, run a play. We just inbounded the ball to uh, Randall. Everyone cleared, and he played one-on-one right on one ISO, and you hope and pray that he makes a shot. And I think come playoff time, that's going to be a big problem uh, for the Knicks because we're going to be in a lot of close games. I don't think we're going to blow anybody out. Uh, and we're going to have to have better uh, play calling at the end of the game to, to win the game. What do you think about that? Well, I agree with you, Steve. You are going to have – it's a different feel. It's a different tone. It's a, it's, a, it's a different situation, and thanks for the phone call. Yes, in situations like that, there are sometimes, and coaches will make that decision. Sometimes coaches just want to inbound the ball and, you know, move it up before their, the opposition sets their defense. And then there's other times where, you know, here's the deal. We're giving it to Randall because Randall's our best player. We're putting the ball in his hands, and we trust that he can make a decision. Either he'll shoot it or he'll give it to somebody else. That's why I said earlier that I like in situations more often, and I don't remember if Derrick Rose was on the floor in the game you were talking about during that same moment, but that's why I like another option on the floor there. Okay, so now you've got Derrick Rose who can also make that option and make that adjustment for you in that same situation. But I hear what you're saying, and I do think that's what happened. That's why we continue to say that if this team had a point guard, it would be it would be so much better. And this is a point guard that's better than Alfred Payton. Alfred Payton is a point guard. Alfred Payton has done a nice job for this team. 
the frustrating thing, and I've said it before, and I know you've heard it, and I'm sure you'll agree if you're a Nick fan, the frustrating thing with me with him is he gets to the basket with ease. He just doesn't finish. And you, the ball rolls out. He he just doesn't finish. I don't know whether it's a, it's spring in the legs. I don't know what it is, but he just does not finish consistently. There are games where he finishes, and you can see the difference. You can see it. But there's games when he doesn't. So late in games, you're hesitant to have him on the floor. And he's your starting point guard at this point, right? So that tells you that there are things, there are deficiencies to his game. I mean, everybody has some deficiencies. But there are deficiencies to his game enough that he's not on the floor for you in the closing minutes of a game when you need your point guard there to make plays and decisions. They're an extension of the coach. Okay, that's why they should be on the floor. And under normal conditions, he would be on the floor if he was a person that, you know, they feel that could handle that scenario. Hawks are going to win this game. They win 111-104 to at home against the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, so, yes, I hear what you're saying about Late game plays, I hear that. And it's something that the Knicks are going to have to work on. And Tom Thibodeau understands clearly that in the postseason, you can't do the same things that you did in the regular season. It's not going to work. It's a totally different scenario. It's totally different. Better teams, better defenses. They're going to take some players away from you. So you're really going to have to uh, do your work and, and make sure that you are more creative. But I do think that... Uh, Thibodeau will make the adjustment on in that uh, situation. I do. I'm just hoping that, and I agree with you, Steve, I don't think they're blowing teams out. I, I think that every game is going to be a close game. At least that's their goal. Their goal is to make sure that they are in every single game. Not They're in it. They're not getting blown out, and they're not blowing people out. They're just trying to hang in there. Do what they need to do and get get a win and move on. You know, and, and like I said, hopefully they'll, uh, you know, surprise some folks. But right now, I just have to get them. For me, I just need them to be either six or higher. And I'm good. I don't want to be involved in the seven to ten madness. And I would understand how some Nick fans would say, listen, we're in fourth. If we finish fifth or sixth, I, I would be, ugh, I'm not happy. For me, I am ecstatic having meaningful games in April going into May as the season winds down. Because that's not what I was expecting when the season began. I was just hoping that I could get into that 7 to 10 situation. Hope it. Speaking of the NFL draft, the 2021 NFL draft begins Thursday, April 29th at 98.7 ESPN, celebrating the return of football with the Draft Challenge. By correctly predicting the results of the first 11 picks, you can win the jersey of your favorite team's first pick. To enter, text DRAFT, 
D-R-A-F-T, to 44202, followed by your picks listed 1 through 11. We'll assign a point for every correct pick and two points for a correct Jets pick. If you think there'll be a trade, just use the word trade for that pick. It's all for your home for the NFL draft. We are 98.7 ESPN. And right now we welcome in the friend of the show, a young man who, JP, let me just tell you this. If you want to find a way to get to the big time, look under the, the timeline of this young man, Trevor Scales. I remember Trevor Scales sitting next to me doing updates. Last week, I looked at Trevor Scales. He, he's doing Sports Nation. He's got his own show. He's, he's on all the different social platforms. He's a, he, he's a man of the media, and I'm glad he had a couple of minutes to join us here on the 987 ESPN. Hi, Trevor. I'll see. I'm a man of the people. Man of the people above all else. Come on now, man. You, know, you welcome me back with some of Madden's cool in the gang. I'm feeling good. It's, it's good to be back. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Are you excited now for the draft? Yes. Yes. I think we got to get stuck in the rigmarole each year with the same old conversations about the quarterbacks moving around the way that they typically do, right? And we go through the the underwear Olympics, if you want to call it that, the pro days that go down and everything. Um, and at this point, I don't know if it's necessarily excitement, so I'm going to change my answer just slightly. I'm just ready to get it over with, right? Like mm. we've done all the talking. We've done all the analyzing that we can do. Now it's time to just make the picks and see where these cats end up balling out. Trev, take us through, because as I always love to tell people, you play the National Football League for the Atlanta uh, Falcons. Um, what is this time like for guys who are waiting to be drafted, A, and B, how different is it now without having that the underwear Olympics, as we love to call it, that you really <laughs> had to show at your pro day what you're able mm-hmm. to do? And it's so different because a lot of teams, there's many teams that didn't even have a season this year because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's such an awkward offseason for a multitude of reasons. As you mentioned, no general combine for all of these cats to come together and showcase the skill. The pro day works to your advantage and against you in the same sort of way, right? The numbers look great, and it's because they were on your own terms. You were on your own turf. You felt comfortable. It was the same sort of routine that you could build up to uh, on a daily basis, right? But that works against you in the same exact way because the environment of the combine is supposed to throw you off. It's supposed to get you out of what you're used to doing on a daily basis. Get out of your venue uh, and show us that you can ball wherever we place you and however we may try to throw you off with weird interview questions in those like strange interviews that end up coming out eventually. Um, we end up getting a sort of a control for everybody on the same playing field. So it's, it's certainly different, but it can work for to your advantage if you're one of those top prospects that has shown on tape that you are of the elite of elite echelons in this draft class. It becomes a lot tougher for those that may not have been seen as much. Trey Lance is a guy that suffers greatly from this, right? He's a guy that's not playing at the same level as – uh, Justin Fields is Trevor Lawrence is even Zach Wilson. He's a guy that's seen as dominating lower competition, but the man went out and did one game, and even that one game at the FCS level wasn't necessarily to the standards of a first five pick 
caliber quarterback. So he's kind of in this purgatory where people are willing to bet on his ceiling. We've seen recent reports from Ian Rappaport that the 49ers are down between he and Mac Jones as far as who they'll take at three. But there's also just this massive question mark as to what he's actually going to be able to bring to a franchise. Does the fact that he was able, despite the competition, does the fact that Mm -hmm. he was able to call his own plays at the line of scrimmage when you watch college football and see everybody looking to the sidelines to watch what the play call is, does that yes. does that help him? 100%. That and the fact that in the one full season in which he was sort of highly touted as a draft prospect, the man threw like 40 touchdowns and one interception. Right? Like the lack of turning over the ball, that's going to translate regardless of level because that shows an ability to – decipher things and and really take care of the football in, uh, in in really key moments. So those are the two things that will absolutely translate for any scout. It's just, you know, the level of competition will just always work against them. And I speak that, and I say that as a person that came from the Division I FCS level, right? Like, and, and, and I understand that those scouts, they just have that sort of understanding that you may not see the best of the best uh, on a Saturday basis in a uh, weekend and week out. Trevor Scale, pride of Harvard University, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> and, and that's what makes the uh, Zach Wilson pick so interesting with the Jets, right? Because the question is going to be, and people have started to, to raise this. Now, you've got there's two schools, right? You've got the folks who are saying, listen, he's done tremendous. Look what he did last season. There's another group that's saying, hey, you know what? But uh, – we remember what he did the season before and the season before right. was, was not really you know, number two pick in the NFL draft worthy. And then you've got Correct. Chris Sims <laughs> all by himself who says, I would take him over Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it speaks to just the inexact science that this mm-hmm. draft stuff is Larry, right? Like there's only so much you can go by. There's only so much rationalizing you can do with each of these prospects. If you want Zach Wilson to be the best prospect of this class, you can make a case for it. Well, like you can look at his numbers and his, uh, you could count him for the leap he made from junior to see senior year and say that he's a guy like Josh Allen that figured it out eventually, right? He has that propensity to settle in and understand and have the self-awareness to tighten things up that he needs to tighten up. You can sell me, right, on any of these prospects being the best one for your franchise in this draft right now. But to Zach Wilson's level of competition, that point, I, I do appreciate that concept being brought into question because what's the toughest game he played was the last game against Coastal Carolina. And it's not like Coastal Carolina is out here being uh, a group of world beaters, right? And that <laughs> rattled his case. They got in his grill, got him off his mark and you saw some holes in his game. BYU was excellent all year. Uh, I, I want to give him credit for that and, and his play specifically. But there is a test still to be had for Zach Wilson that I think we'll eventually see, given that he's walking in as of, reports, uh, as of the report saying, walking into this New York Jets job with the starter's keys in hand. Yeah, and – which is always interesting because, you know, that could change. Because people lie at this time of the year, Trevor. I mean, I'm just, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm not saying that the Jets are not going to take him, but 
you know, I mean, we get a lot of misinformation around this time of the year. Oh, yeah, it's smokescreen season. Like, that's that's (laughs) the purpose of what these GMs, like, leak information out, just to throw people off their game. We might mess around and have the complete draft order mixed up by the time we get to uh, Thursday night. Now, I don't think the question is at one. I'm pretty (laughs) sold on the idea of Trevor Lawrence going to Jacksonville. That's, That's not changing. I do think that there is some wiggle room at two, even with the Jets GM coming out and, and, and loving up on Zach Wilson openly, right? Like and gushing over him openly. I could still see some random stuff happening uh, that slides them over. Because look, Larry, I'd be hard pressed to, to leave this radio hit without saying, I don't know how we're looking at Justin Fields and saying anything other than that is the greatest athlete playing that position right now. What we saw in the national semifinal should have told us everything from a toughness standpoint, from an ability to uh, decipher defenses. Like he's going up against uh, a Brett Venables defense that, that he tore apart. It wasn't even a question, right? Like, and so I'm just trying to figure out why exactly we have questions about Justin Fields. Maybe it is hashtag lying season that's taking a hit at this point. But it's, it's just it, it's unfathomable to me to look at Justin Fields as anything other than one of the most elite prospects that we've seen in recent time at that position. Does what happened to the previous quarterback at Ohio State hurt him? Yes, but I think that's unfair. Mm-hmm. Right? Look, I think we have to, as much as we want uh, to tout the franchise, the, excuse me, the programs at that level, right? Like they're not franchises in college, even though they operate at a multi billion dollar clip. Alabama's a franchise. Pro- <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Um, look, I think what happened to Dwayne Haskins and even before him with Cardale Jones, yeah, it works against him. Him being a black quarterback at that school works against him, right? Like he's, he's already walking out with like the proverbial strike of being a black quarterback. There are so many uh, sort of, uh, preconceived notions that you're having to fight just off the strength of that. You loop in the Ohio State recent history, and it's it's not looking well for you. But um, there should be so many different counter arguments to that, right? Like I think we haven't seen. He's a statue, right? He's two twenty seven, running four four something, a cannon for a right arm, and we're trying to find something wrong. And that's where I I think I'm just I'm mystified by it. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Uh, Trevor Scales, former running back. Who's the best? Give me the top two running backs in this year's draft. Oh, it's Najee Harris and uh, Travis Etienne in a runaway. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there are two different styles of runners that really intrigue me. Travis Etienne is a violent runner. That's not to say that he's not athletically gifted because he is one of the most, I think, we've seen in recent years. Uh, the brother has uh, an ability to get to top speed through the hole that is remarkable. When I allude to that, it's the idea of think of an inside zone, right? Like the quarterback sticks that ball out, pushes it into his gut at the mesh point. Travis Etienne has the best concept of understanding, allowing the play to develop in front of him. And as soon as he sees the opening, it's full speed acceleration. He's at the top speed before anybody else can even think to get to him. Najee Harris is just the smoothest back in this class. He is one of those guys that as big as he is, 
he's about as smooth as the way he talks. He's from the Bay Area. And if you ever get a chance to just listen to one of his press conferences and just how much, how loose he is at all times, he plays the exact same way. He's a guy that has reckless abandon. We've seen him hurdle over cats that are six feet tall in the middle of a run and keep on going. But he also has like this power concept in being as big as he is that he sheds tackles. He led all of FBS in broken tackles at that level. And obviously, he wasn't even getting the amount of burn and the amount of carries that a lot of these other running backs get because, oh, by the way, he's got Jalen Waddle who gets hurt after four, four games and then the eventual Heisman winner, Devontae Smith, out at wideout. So he's got to share the wealth. Um, but those are the two most gifted backs in this class without question. As a running back, if you were a GM, give me – three of the top O-linemen you would love to see blocking for you that you mm. saw this past season? Um, I'm still grinding through O-line tape. I'll be completely honest with you. But mm-hmm. Panay Sewell has leapt so far away from the rest of that class. Mm. Um, I, Larry, I'll tell you this. I saw a clip of him on an interception that made me realize how special he is. Wow. Ball gets picked off. DB is running off to the sideline. He at left tackle gets out of his pass set, and Larry, he broke down like a 220-pound linebacker and made the fit tackle like I've never seen before. If you can go find that clip on Twitter, uh, on YouTube, I implore your listeners to go find that clip because it is a, it is a thing of beauty to see a man that big move mm-hmm. around that well. He's just so dang athletic. He has really just set himself above just about everyone else in this class when it comes to offensive line play. He is, um, he's he's a specimen. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> he is he transcends that. He he you know it's very rare that you have a, especially in line play, right? It's very rare that you have a. This is no. This is the guy. You need to get this guy. Right. It's very rare. Right. He's that way, and the only other person that's like that in this draft is, you know, Pitts from Florida, the tight end. Like, everybody's like this. If you got to get one tight end in this draft, that's it. The rest of the tight ends, eh, we're not saying they're not great, but they're not Kyle Pitts. (laughs) And on on the lowest of keys where people are saying about Kyle Pitts, like, he may be the best player, just football player in this draft. (laughs) And as a Georgia fan who watched him do what he did to the Bulldogs secondary, I am here to attest to him being the best football player I've ever seen on the field because what he does in so many different ways, you can line him up just about anywhere. Now, he's not the strongest blocking tight end, but, like, we aren't necessarily asking that of tight ends in today's NFL game. You can package him with another tight end, and you make that work as far as, like, having some guy in line and having him split out into the slot. But even with him in line, he'll give you enough uh, to to, to – slow up, chip a defensive end, and get out on his route. The the beauty of Kyle Pitts is that once the ball gets in his hands, he is even more special. He ran a four four something in the forty and Larry, it was it was cricket. He was running he was swerving when he was running. So I don't know that was the least efficient pass to forty yards and he still ran it faster than about ninety percent of draft prospects run it on a year to year basis. So he's incredibly impressive. And like you said, just uh, miles ahead of way, and like he's he is vaulting himself into the best ball catcher in this draft mm. class, not just tight end. Wow! Uh, last one, Trev, best wide receiver in the class. 
man, and it's, it's and I know, so, and I, and I know a bunch of them are in Alabama, but <laughs> I get that right, right, two of them, right, right off the bat, Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith <laughs> are two of the names that you want to throw out there. But let's not forget Jamar Chase. Who, yeah. Before mm-hmm. Devontae Smith broke all the records, Jamar Chase had him. <laughs> yeah. He was Scott, and then you remember that Jalen Waddle in the four games that he played was more productive yardage-wise than Devontae Smith in the first four games and had, I believe it's 13 fewer receptions. So we're talking about an explosive guy when we talk about Jalen Waddle. He doesn't get nearly the amount of touches, but he doesn't need them because as soon as he touches it, it's headed to the crib. I still think that Jamar Chase is like the best receiver in this class, though, because as I mentioned, he had all the records before Devontae Smith rolled through and broke them all because he's also physical as all outdoors. Jalen Waddle, absolute burner. Devontae Smith, absolute burner. Jalen Waddle is not afraid at the line of scrimmage to shed somebody trying to press him and will go over the top of you and make the 50-50 catches. Right? Like he's one of those awe-inspiring receivers on a playmaking basis. Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith, you're just not going to catch him. Like, just, 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 just cross your heart and, and hope your safety over the top has eyes on him at all times when it comes to those two Bama receivers. But Jamar, regardless of what you do, is going to make something shake, and I think that's the most impressive thing about him. Is, uh, and I know I said one more, I lied, is Enough, the ability for the wide receivers to understand how they have to shed what the what – the, secondary can do at the line and mm. get off. Is that the biggest adjustment they have to make, Trevor? I wouldn't from, say that. From... I think Jamar, I would, I would say the Alabama and LSU offenses provide quite a bit of read concepts. The biggest mm-hmm. thing that translates from the college to the NFL game is your ability to read on the fly, mm-hmm. finding coverages, assessing coverages on the fly. Is this DB turning on me? Like when he opens his hips to the sideline, okay, that's man coverage. I now know my route changes to this. Mm. Or he opened his hips towards the field side. I know he's playing zone, so now my route changes to this. I feel him on my hip pocket. He's playing this cover. Being able to decipher that on the fly is the biggest thing, and understanding where you can find windows in zones because quarterback ain't got that much time, oh, but so much time to decipher that as well. And before you get your face mask back to him, understand that that ball is on its way. So – those are the things that you have to really see to translate um, at the next level for, for wideouts. It's pure athleticism is always going to have a claim at the NFL level, but your ability to kind of read defenses, even as a receiver, is going to be all the more crucial when you get to that stage. Trevor Scales uh, teaching us. All right, prof- all right, professor. Thanks for the thanks for the <laughs> knowledge today. Uh, tell us when we can see you, my friend. I know you're all over the place. Oh, man, just trying to make something shake out of nothing, man. So every weekday you can check us out on ESPN+. Plus. Sports Nation is there every day uh, on SportsCenter, on Snapchat. That is seven days a week. I host Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings. Uh, beyond that, I'll probably end up popping up on your screen just any and everywhere. And uh, just keep a lookout for me. We've got the draft special on all of ESPN social networks. That is Twitter, YouTube, Live, Facebook, the ESPN app, and even TikTok. We got some draft coverage beginning with round one. Whenever TV fires their thing up, we'll be firing up as well, uh, and we'll carry you through draft, uh, draft rounds one through seven. So that's everywhere for this week, and I'm sure I'll have another platform for you next week at some point. That sounds good. He's all over the place, and he's, he's good at what he does. Trevor Scales, thanks for a couple of minutes, my friend. We'll talk soon. 
Man, appreciate y'all having me as always. Y'all be well, stay safe, and stay sane. It's the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN, 1-800-919-3776. Talking Mets right now. For that, we turn to our Mets guy. He's Rich Catino, who joins us here on 98.7 ESPN. Hey, Rich, how are you? Good, Larry. How are you tonight? I'm all right, thank you. Rich, I got to tell you something. After watching Jacob deGrom uh, on Friday, he's almost making me think about replacing Tom Seaver. Rich, I never thought I would see that. I mean, I kind of hinted at it in watching Dwight Gooden, but obviously and unfortunately the longevity wasn't there. But what we're starting to see what DeGrom has put together and when we understand where we are with, you know, live baseballs and exit velo and how the game has totally changed, not that it's Seaver's fault, but it's it's making me have to reconsider now that I may have to replace Tom Terrific as one of the uh, of, as the best Met pitcher in 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 team history. It is incredible uh, what he's accomplished um, because I think that one of the things that you know it's really funny because you know we used to talk about on the day Stock pitched in the mid eighties, good day. And then we also talked about Matt Harvey Day, when Matt Harvey was at his fulcrum. But mm-hmm. I haven't heard anyone talk about DeGrom Day, and DeGrom Day is becoming, you know, a staple of the Met fans' diet. And the other night, you know, at the game, and, you know, when he did what he did with his bat, and he did what he did with his, you know, arm, um, I cover a lot of baseball games, Larry, and it was one of the times I was really honored to be in the press box because I saw something that we don't really see a lot. Numbers galore. He's passing all kinds of numbers for start of season strikeouts. and even even passed, he has a lower career ERA right now than Tom Seaver had as a Met. Um, It's close. It's a couple of points difference, but he's just – an amazing player, and I think that, you know, forget about being the best pitcher in baseball, Jacob DeGrom might be the best player in baseball, period. And I think we've gotten to that point, and Seaver got to that point when he was a player. Um, I hate comparing guys from different eras, but Jacob DeGrom is the best at what I've seen, best at what he does, and I've seen in a long time. And he continues to do it every fifth day. And he tops himself every fifth day. And um, I think it was uh, it was Marcus Stroman, I think, that said at one point, he's from another planet. And that's, that's I think, a great description of what Jacob DeGrom has been doing for the Mets during his Mets career. He's been phenomenal. And, you know, with any kind of run support or better bullpen, his numbers would be phenomenal as a record. His win-loss percentage really would. Certainly the wins. It would be crazy. Uh, Today, Rich, I want to talk about uh, Walker. I I really like what he brought to the table today. I thought he did a nice job. Uh, Obviously, seven innings, no earned runs, four strikeouts, three walks. He's 
he just seems to be getting himself settled. And every outing, he seems to give you a little bit more, a little bit more seems to be better and better. Because, listen, Corbin, even though I know he's struggling this year, it's early, but this he's not a, you know, he's not an easy mark. No, he's not. And I think that the thing, the thing that I've been impressed with Walker from a pitching standpoint is his fastball. It has much more velocity than I remember seeing from last year. And the finish of the pitches is just a tremendous amount of, you know, late movement on his fastball that I didn't see from him last year. And, you know, when you talk about the Met pitching staff and, you know, what the Mets did today is, you know, they're six and two at home and all of those games have been against divisional opponents. And I think the Mets are starting to establish city field again as a place that's not a fun place for visiting teams to come. And when you think about, you might have to face Jacob DeGrom. And if you don't, you might have to face Taiwan Walker or Marcus Stroman. And I think that, you know, it's gotten to the point where, um, you know, if the Mets score first and you're going up against these pitchers, you got a, a steep hill to climb. And we saw that today. The Mets scored first. And the thing is, I don't think Walker had his best stuff today. Mm-hmm. I think he battled through it today. And I'm always impressed with pitchers when they don't have their best stuff, how they could put great pitching lines up. And 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 Taiwan Walker did that today. And um, – he was very, very um, amazing. Everyone talks about the defense today, and Almora made a great catch, and there was the relay. But the great defense may have started in the first inning when Walker gave up a hit and then picked them off at first base. Mm. So I think that kind of got them. That's all moving in the right direction today very early on in this game. This was an interesting week, and we're talking to uh, Rich Catino, who covers the Mets for us. You can also read him of course, with the great work that he does in covering the Mets for the uh, New York Extra. You're listening to the Larry Hardesty Show here on 98.7 ESPN. Uh, Rich, this was an interesting week because there were a couple of games that I can think of. I don't want to rehash them where the the, the defense was just awful. But uh, for this week, I thought you could start to see that the hitting was getting a little better, and J.D. Davis this week has really been – on a tear. And listen, as long as he's hitting like that, you live with what he gives you at at third base. No question. And I think, you know, J.D. Davis bat has, you know, the last week done wonderful things. And we sometimes forget how, what what a great bat he was two seasons ago when he had a full season with the Mets, particularly at home, his OPS at home in 2019 is right up there with, you know, great men OPSs in the past, like David Wright and Daryl Strawberry and Gary Carter. And, you know, it was it was at that kind of level. Um, but, yeah, I think you have to live with the, the glove at third base. And I think there are things he could do to help. I think his footwork at third needs to improve once he gets the ball. I mean, uh, it was funny because I was, you know, watching some film of – Davis this week, and I saw him uh, tap his glove all the time, and I remember what, how this town felt when Richard Todd, the old mm-hmm. quarterback, used to tap before he threw the ball. I just think it's a, I think it's a habit he's got to get, kind of get over, but I don't think you sit him down on a regular basis because that bat has been 
has been too good. And today's a great example because the Mets are going with a left-handed pitcher. And, you know, they have a lot of left-handed bats. They sat some of the left-handed bats today, like McNeil and Dominic Smith. But Davis gave protection to the left-handed bats that were in the lineup. And I think that that's a very important dynamic for the lineup. And he gives you that on a day-in and day-out basis because he's, he's that good a hitter from the right-handed side of the plate. The one thing, as, as we look ahead, Rich, to this week, uh, after a day off tomorrow now, the Mets have a couple of games against the Boston Red Sox team that has surprised a lot of people who did not expect them to have the record that they have, and they got off to a really good start. And then you've got Philly again. So, it's you know, for me, uh, it's about winning series, especially in your own division. That's what you want to continue to do. We've seen a lot of Philly early. Is there going to be a time in the summer where we're not going to see them, and then we'll they'll pop back up in the fall? <laughs> We've seen a lot of Philly. <laughs> a lot of Philly, and you know the Mets did sweep them a series from them, you know, at City Field. So they did kind of get some of the bitter taste in their mouth of the first series they had in Philly. But they get a chance to go down there this weekend again, and obviously try to win a series from them and. It really is about winning series. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, Mets certainly have some work to do with their road record, but they haven't lost a series at home yet this year. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many teams could say that in baseball. And I think that, um, but on the road, certainly they got swept by the Cubs. They lost two out of three to the Phillies. They did win a series in Colorado, winning two out of three. But I think the other interesting thing about the Mets is two straight Sundays now. We've seen them in rubber games of three-game series, Colorado last weekend and here on City Field against the Nationals this weekend. And both times the Mets won games, and predominantly, or at least part of that win, was with their defense. You know, McCann's throw last Sunday, and then the litany of great defensive plays today. So I think that's a good sign for the Mets. And they've shown a lot of resiliency. Um, So I think those are all positives for the Mets. And I think that you know, Luis Rojas deserves credit for that because I think he he's very good at stabilizing emotions. Probably he is as good at that as a young manager as anyone I've seen in the Met manager's chair. So I think that's another big reason why the Mets are in first place in the NL East right now. And speaking of that, they're the only team over 500 in the NL East. Rich of Philly, Miami. I'm not sure about Miami. I mean, they, they made a... You know some strides last season in the in the shortened season because of COVID and got to the postseason, which is good. So you give Don Mattingly and them some credit. Atlanta, Washington, which I still think when it comes down to the end of it, uh, and I know Atlanta doesn't have the pitching that they've had in the past. I still, if there's anybody that I'm concerned about in that division, it's Atlanta. It's not Washington. It's not Philly, and it's not Miami. It's it's Atlanta. Yeah, and you know it was funny. We talked to David Martinez this week because obviously he was in town managing the Nationals and. I asked him, you know, if this was a situation where this is a tough division because of all the pitching that's in this division. And he agreed with me, but he, he said to me, you know, which I think it's the lineups these teams have in this division. And he said something that really made me awaken about the Mets. And sometimes you have to talk to opponents. He said, when you come and play the Mets, not only with that staff, but with that lineup, you better come ready to play. And, it was amazing to hear that from an opposing manager and a manager that's, you know, been a successful manager in this division. So I think 
the Braves will get will get their stuff together. And I thought at the start of the season, and I still think it that you know it will be a Met Braves race for the division. And I think teams like the Phillies and Nationals were competing for a wild card, and obviously the loser of the Met Brave battle in the division. But it's a deep division, not only in pitching, but in lineups. And, you know, that's what some pitchers on the shelf right now. Mm-hmm. We're waiting for Noah Syndergaard to come back. We're waiting for Steven Strasburg to get healthy. So, um, but I think these head-to-head divisional games the Mets have with these teams all season long are going to be great series and great baseball. And this division is deep and talented and pitcher-rich, but as Dave Martinez opened my eyes, they're also lineup-rich teams as well. Uh, one more thing before I let you go, Rich. Uh, happy to see this weekend Conforto and Alonzo starting to get the bats going, and that's really what's going to you know, really get this team rolling with the pitching. Once they start scoring runs, and you've got you know really good pitching at the top of the order with DeGrom and Stroman, obviously. Peterson, I think, is solid. Walker's been very good. Uh, you know, when, As you mentioned, once you get uh, uh, Syndergaard back and Carrasco, um, you know, this this is going to be Seth Lugo in the bullpen. This is going to be a, a, a could be a fun team. It's going to be a really fun team, and I think you hit on a great super point, Larry, about Conforto and Alonzo. Well, Conforto, when he's been in slumps, and he's been in slumps other times in my career, he's always needed that week or so of hitting line drives to get out of the slump, and he's kind of had that this week. He's got some hits. He obviously had a home run the other night, but you could see his back coming around. Well, Alonzo and J.G. Davidson on this point with us in the post-game Zoom, which was an outstanding point, he says he thinks Conforto's returning back to 19 because he's using his legs as much at the plate as he is his arms. Hmm. And he's not reaching for pitches. He's not swinging for a lot of pitches in the dirt or high in the strike zone. And when he's getting his pitch, he's he's putting his bat on it. But I also think Alonzo's returning to the 2019 Alonzo because I'm seeing in his non-home run at bats how good he's doing in the plate, driving the ball to right center. You know, he's getting his share of walks, which means he's laying off pitches that he was striking out on in 2020. So I do agree that those are big bats. But there's another big bat that's got to come around. His bat's too good for me not to think it will come around, and that's Jeff McNeil. Mm-hmm. And, again, we've seen flashes from McNeil, but he's a much more consistent bat. And then, obviously, we have him brought up William Wendor, whose bat, again, has had its some moments, but certainly not the consistent level that we, we expected from him. So you have those two bats in the, in the, in the, in the mix, too, that, in Wendor and McNeil that are going to be very important for the Mets' offensive lineup all season long. The good thing about Lindor is he hasn't let the the offensive inconsistencies affect him defensively in the field. He is still – you can see why he is one of the top shortstops in baseball. He continues to make really great plays. And I think Gary, Keith, and Ron made a point of it in one of the games I saw this week about how he has really become the captain of the infield, right? He comes in, he's calling signals, he's, he's moving people around. You even saw him with Stroman. You know, Stroman's looking and, and he's giving them, yeah, you can go ahead and pitch. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'll, I'll move when I need to move. It's like, you know, he's just taken over. <laughs> he really has. In today's game, he had a different partner at second base in Jonathan Villar. And he was constantly talking to Villar, moving him around. I know when Robles came up after he had the double um, 
first time up at the Mets turned a great relay throw on to get him at third. Right before then at bat, he had moved him a little bit closer to the outfielders, almost like in my mind, said, did Lindor know that Robles is going to double up the gap? Mm-hmm. But he's a tremendously smart baseball player and a throwback, really, in in terms of how he approaches the game. And he's very accountable for when he makes mistakes, but he's also very supportive to players. And, and I think that, you know, it's amazing what a leader he's come to be in this team so quickly. And in a season where he hasn't got off to a great offensive start, his leadership is still very obvious to me on the field on a day-in and day-out basis. And no question about that. He's uh, he's He's been a great addition defensively, and, you know, hopefully the bat will come around. Rich, as always, great job. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk soon. You got it, Larry. Stay well, and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, baseball's like that everyday friend is back, and it, it's a good feeling. It is, especially when your team is doing well. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. This is 98.7 ESPN.